Section 5 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 1, Chapters 18 and 19. Chapter 18 in which the name of a great poet is cried out in a solitary place. As I once more shouldered my pack and went my way, the character of the countryside began to change, and from a semi-pastoral heathiness and furziness took on a wildness of aspect which, if indeed melodramatic, was melodrama carried to the point of genius. It was a scene for which the nineteenth century has no worthy use. It finds ignoble occupation as a gaping ground for the vacuous tourist, somewhat as Heine might have imagined Pan carrying the gentleman's luggage from the coach to the hotel. It suffers teetotal picnic parties to encamp amid its savage hollows, and it humbly allows itself to be painted by the worst artists like a lion in a menagerie it is a survival of the extinct chaos entrapped and exhibited amid the smug parks and well-rolled downs of england i came upon it by a winding ledge of road which clung to the bare side of the hill like the embattlements of some huge castle some two hundred feet below a brawling upland stream stood for the moat and for the enemy there was on the opposite side of the valley a great green company of trees settled like a cloud slope upon slope making all haste to cross the river and ascend the heights where i stood some intrepid larches waved green pennons in the very midst of the turbulent water here and there a veteran lay with his many-summered head abased in the rocky course of the stream and here was a young foolhardy beech that had climbed within a dozen yards of the rampart all was wild and solitary and one might have declared it a scene untrodden by the foot of man but for the telegraph posts and small piles of broken macadam at punctual intervals and the ginger-beer bottles and paper bags of local confectioners that lent an air of civilization to the road it was a place to quote alastor in and nothing but a bad memory prevented my affrighting the oaks and rills with declamation as it was i could only recall the lines the poet wandering on through araby and persia and the wild carmanian waste and o'er the aerial mountains which pour down indus and oxus from their icy caves and that other passage beginning at length upon the lone Chorazmian shore he paused this last i mouthed loving the tastes of its thunder mouthed thrice as though it were an incantation and indeed from what immediately followed it might reasonably have seemed so at length upon the lone Chorazmian shore he paused i mouthed it for the fourth time and lo advancing to me eagerly along the causeway seemed the very sprite of alastor himself there was a star upon his forehead and around his young face there glowed an aureole of gold and roses to speak figuratively for the star upon his brow was hope 
and the golden roses encircling his head, a miniature rainbow, were youth and health. His longish golden hair had no doubt its share in the effect, as likewise the soft yellow silk tie that fluttered like a flame in the speed of his going. His blue eyes were tragically fresh and clear, as though they had yet been little used. There were little wings of haste upon his feet, and he came straight to me with the air of the angel Gabriel about to make his divine announcement. For a moment I thought that he was an apparition of prophecy charged to announce the maiden of the Lord for whom I was seeking. However, his brief flushed question was not of these things. He desired to ask the time of day. And next, here after a bump to the earth, one's thoughts ballooned again heavenwards. Had I seen a green copy of Shelley lying anywhere along the road? Nothing so good had happened to me, I replied, but I believed that I had seen a copy of Alastor. For a moment my meaning was lost on him. Then he flushed and smiled, thanked me, and was off again, saying that he must find his Shelley, as he wouldn't lose it for the world. He had presently disappeared as suddenly as he had come but he had left me a companion, a radiant, reverberant name. And for some little space the name of Shelley clashed silvery music among the hills. Its seven letters seemed to hang right across the clouds like the seven stars, an apocalyptic constellation, a veritable sky sign. And again the name was an angel standing with a silver trumpet, and again it was a song. The heavens opened, and across the blue rift it hung in a glory of celestial fire, while from behind and above the clouds came a warbling as of innumerable larks. How strange was this miracle of fame, I pondered, this strange apotheosis by which a mere private name becomes a public symbol. Shelley was once a private person, whose name had no more universal meaning than my own, and so were Byron and Cromwell and Shakespeare. Yet now their names are facts as stubborn as the Rocky Mountains, or the National Gallery, or the Circulation of the Blood. From their original inch or so of private handwriting they have spread and spread out across the world, and now whole generations of men find intellectual accommodation within them. Drinking fountains and other public institutions are erected upon them. Yea, Carlisle has become a Chelsea swimming-bath, and Highland Mary is sold for whiskey, while Mr. Gladstone is to be met everywhere in the form of a bag. Does Mr. Gladstone, I wonder, instruct his valet to pack his Gladstone? How strange it must seem! Try it yourself some day, and its effect on your servant. Ask him, for example, to pack your blank, and see how he'll stare. Coming nearer and nearer to earth, I wondered if Colonel Boycott ever uses the word boycott, and how strange it must have seemed to the late McAdam to walk for miles and miles upon his own name, like a carpet spread out before him. Then I once more rebounded heavenwards at the vision of the eager, dreamy lad whose question had set going all this odd clockwork of association. He wouldn't lose his Shelley for the world. How like twenty, 
and how many things that he wouldn't lose for the world will he have to give up before he is thirty i reflected sententiously give up at last maybe with estonian differences men on a sinking ship take no thought of the gold and specie in the hold and then all of a sudden a little way up the ferny grassy hillside i caught sight of the end of a book half hidden amongst the ferns i climbed up to it of course it was that very green shelly which the young stranger wouldn't lose for the world end of chapter eighteen chapter nineteen why the stranger would not lose his shelly for the world picking up the book i opened it involuntarily at the title page and then i resisted a great temptation i shut it again a little flowery plot of girl's handwriting had caught my eye and a girl's pretty name when love and beauty meet it is hard not to play the eavesdropper and it was easy to guess that love and beauty met upon that page st anthony had no harder fight with the ladies he was unpolite enough to call demons than i in resisting the temptation to take another look at the pen and ink love-making now as i looked back i think it was sheer priggishness to resist so human and yet so reverent an impulse there is nothing sacred from reverence and love's lovers have a right to regard themselves as the confidants of lovers whenever they may chance to surprise either them or their letters while i was still hesitating and wondering how i could get the book conveyed to its romantic owner suddenly a figure turned the corner of the road and there was alastor coming back again i slipped the book in distracted search for which he was evidently still engaged under the ferns and leisurely lighting a pipe prepared to tease him he was presently within hail and looking up outside of me have you found your shelly yet i called down to him as he stood a moment in the road he shook his head no but he meant to find it if he had to hunt every square foot of the valley inch by inch wouldn't any other book do i asked him would he take a boccaccio or a golden ass or a tom jones in exchange for of such consisted my knapsack library he laughed at negative and it seemed a shame to tease him it is not so much the book itself he said but the giver i suggested of course he blushingly replied well suppose i have found it i continued you don't mean it but suppose i have i'm only supposing will you give me the pleasure of your company at dinner at the next inn and tell me its story oh, indeed i will gladly he replied well then i said catch for here it is the joy with which he recovered it was pretty to behold and the eagerness with which he ran through the leaves to see that the violets and the primroses and the spray of meadow-sweet young love's bookmarkers were all in their right places touched my heart he could not thank me enough and as we stepped out to the inn some three or four miles on the road i elicited something of his story 
he was a clerk in a city office he said but his dreams were not commercial his one dream was to be a great poet or a great writer of some sort and this was one of his holidays as i looked at his sensitive young face unmarred by pleasure and unscathed by sorrow bathed daily i surmised in the may-dew of high philosophies ah so high washed from within by a constant radiancy of pure thoughts and from without by a constant basking in the shine of every beautiful and noble and tender thing i thought it not unlikely that he might fulfil his dream but alas as he talked on with lighted face and chin in the air how cruelly i realized how little i had fulfilled mine and how hard it was to talk to him without crushing some flower of his fancy or casting doubt upon his dreams oh the gulf between twenty and thirty i had never quite comprehended it before and how inexpressibly sad it was to hear him prattling on of the ideal life of socialism of walt whitman and what not all the dear old quackeries while i was already settling down comfortably to a conservative middle age he had no hope that had not long been my despair no aversion that i had not yet accepted among the more or less comfortable conditions of the universe he was all for nature and liberty whereas i had now come to realize the charm of the artificial and the social value of constraint young man i cried in my heart what shall i do to inherit eternal youth the gulf between us was further revealed when at length coming to our inn we sat down to dinner to me it seemed the most natural thing in the world to call for the wine list and consult his choice of wine but will you believe me he asked to be allowed to drink water and when he quoted the dear old stock nonsense out of thoreau about being able to get intoxicated on a glass of water i could have laughed and cried at the same time happy boy i cried still able to turn water into wine by the divine power of your youth and then turning to the waiter i ordered a bottle of number thirty seven wine is the only youth granted to middle age i continued in vino juvenatus one might say and may you my dear young friend long remain so proudly independent of that great elixir though i confess i have met no few young men under thirty who have been excellent critics of the wine list as the water warmed him he began to expand into further confidence and then he told me the story of his shelley if a story it can be called for of course it was simple enough and the reader has long since guessed that the reason why he wouldn't lose his shelley for the world was the usual simple reason i listened to his rhapsodies of her and her and her with an aching heart how good it was to be young no wonder men had so desperately sought the secret of eternal youth who would not be young for ever for such dreams and such an appetite here of course was the very heaven-sent confidant for such an enterprise as mine 
I told him all about my whim, just for the pleasure of watching his face light up with youth's generous worship of all such fantastic nonsense. You should have seen his enthusiasm and heard all the things he said. Why, to encounter such a whimsical fellow as myself in this unimaginative age was like meeting a fairy prince or coming unexpectedly upon don quixote attacking the windmill i offered him the post of sancho panza and indeed what would he not give he said to leave all and follow me but then i reminded him that he had already found his golden girl of course i forgot he said with I'm afraid of something of a sigh. For, you see, he was barely twenty, and to have met your ideal so early in life is apt to rob the remainder of the journey of something of its zest. I asked him to give me his idea of what the blessed maid should be, to which he replied with a smile that he could not do better than describe her, which he did for the sixth time, it was as i had foreseen the picture of a saint a goddess a dream very lovely and pure and touching but it was not a woman and it was a woman i was in search of with all her imperfections on her head i suppose no boy of twenty really loves a woman but loves only his etherealized extract of woman entirely free from earthy adulteration I noticed the words pure and natural in constant use by my young friend. Some lines went through my head, but I forbore to quote them. Quote, Alas, your so-called purity is merely immaturity, and woman's nature plays its part sincerely, but in woman's art. Close quote. But I couldn't resist asking him out of sheer waggery whether he didn't think a touch of powder and even very judiciously applied a touch of rouge was an improvement to woman his answer went to my heart paint a woman he exclaimed it was as though you had said paint an angel i could bear no more of it <laughs> the gulf yawned shiveringly wide at remarks like that so with the privilege of an elder I declared it time for bed and yawned off to my room. Next morning we bade good-bye and went our several ways. As we parted he handed me a letter which I was not to open till I was well on my journey. We waved good-bye to each other till the turnings of the road made parting final, and then, sitting down by the roadside, I opened the letter. It proved to be not a letter but a poem which he had evidently written after i had left him for bed it was entitled with twenty's love for a tag of latin ad puellum aureum and it ran thus the golden girl in every place hides and reveals her lovely face her neither skill nor strength may find tis only loving moves her mind if but a pretty face you seek, you'll find one any day or week. But if you look with deeper eyes, and seek her lovely, pure and wise, then must you wear the pilgrim's shoon, 
for many a weary wandering moon only the pure in heart may see that lily of all purity only in clean unsullied thought the image of her face is caught and only he her love may hold who buys her with the spirit's gold thus only shall you find your pearl o seeker of the golden girl she trod but now the grassy way a vision of eternal may the devil take his impudence only the pure in heart clean unsullied thought how like the cheek of twenty and all the same how true dear lad how true certainly the child is the father to man dirige nos o sage of the golden twenties as i meditatively folded up the pretty bit of writing i made a resolution but it was one of such importance that not only is another chapter needed to do it honor but it may well inaugurate another book of this strange uneventful history end of chapter nineteen end of book one end of section five